Hello, I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, a Silhouette Interview. The Silhouette Conversations are sparked from a list of standardized questions. We have the good fortune to hear firsthand from teaching exemplars about their teaching and teaching life. Today, our Silhouette guest is Dr. Carolyn Medine. Dr. Carolyn Medine is the inaugural All Shall Be Well Professor in Religion and Director of the Institute for African American Studies at University of Georgia. Thank you, Carolyn, for being here. Welcome. Thank you for asking me. So let's get started with our questions. Okay. When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? Hmm, I knew I wanted to be a teacher, actually, but uh, I didn't know I didn't grow up in a way that I would have known about professors. So I really didn't know I could be a professor until I went to governor's school when I was 16. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was able to take, they had professors there who were working with, you know, with the, the gifted quote unquote students. And all of a sudden there was this life that I had never realized I could have, but I, I think I always wanted to be a teacher. And do you know why? Like, what was? Well, my uh, mother's sister, my aunt, she is a teacher and her husband is a teacher. And he was a principal, too. And so all of that was sort of in the atmosphere. And my, my mom kind of wanted me to be a lawyer. But being a lawyer is not something I think I would be very good at. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I agree. Actually, I actually agree with that. Um, who was proud of you when you became a teacher? Oh, my, well, that's a good question. Uh, me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I don't think the fat kind of family I come from, I don't think they really understood what a PhD was. And so saying I was going to be a teacher was something that they could understand. And I think they accepted that, but they couldn't figure out why it took so long to become a teacher, right? Um, so when I finally got my first job and everything, I think my mom was proud, but I think I was probably the most proud because I had made it through graduate school and, you know, was heading into a classroom. My mentor, uh, my uh, rural Tyson, the late rural Tyson, who taught at Chapel Hill, I think he was very proud of me as a teacher too. Nice. Who has influenced your teaching for the better? Oh, wow. Mr. Tyson, he was a really good teacher. Um, he, I, he, he didn't really do active learning, but he was clued into student sensibilities. And he always, um, would, he had two uh, yellow pads he would send around the room throughout class so students could write comments and questions. Um, it was, and I'd never seen another teacher do that. So that was a big influence for me. Um, and Joanne Waghorn, because when I was at Chapel Hill in my MA, it was all men. And she was the, when they interviewed her, she came to, and we didn't realize as graduate students, it was an interview. We just thought we had a speaker, right? But she came and she sat down on the desk Um and started teaching. And I thought, oh, well, you don't have to stand behind a podium all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, I'm gonna that I'm gonna try that. And in, and that's how I really teach. I think she gave me an example of 
no matter what class I'm in, I try to sit so that um, students don't feel a kind of power over, mm-hmm. but feel that I'm more in a conversation with them. Uh, so she was big. And Charles Long, in a lot of ways, um, he's just such a dynamic teacher. Um, and he said something that I, I still struggle with. He said, teach the ones who, who are teachable. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, at our current moment, that seems so countercultural. Um, where it seems like we're always supposed to be trying to figure out how to reach everybody. And he was really clear that you can't reach everybody. Um, so you teach the ones that are teachable is what he used to say. Well, and that feels like a better interpretation or a better fit to the, the Du Boisian talented 10th too, right? That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about those who were open and ready and, and exactly. receivable and accessible. And who yeah. would do some work in your class, not just mm-hmm. sit there passively, you know, expecting the kind of banking model. Or actively resisting you, right? I mean, we've all taught classes where <laughs> I dare you to say anything salient. Go ahead, I dare you. Yeah, the people who will at least take time to ponder it uh, before they, even if they say something mean, mm-hmm. if they thought about it, I'm okay. I mean, I can handle that. But just the sort of automatic reaction or the, I'm going to be up now, It's I'm going to be on my phone or I'm going to be on my laptop or, you know, something like that, rather than paying attention in class. What has surprised you about teaching or the teaching life? That you never get it right. (laughs) (laughs) That you never get it right. Yeah, Yeah, you never get it right. Mm -hmm. They get young, they, they, in a way, they stay the same age. Mm -hmm. And we, we get older. Mm -hmm. And I've been teaching 30 years. So I've taught, you know, millennials, I've taught Gen Z, Gen X, Gen Z. There really are differences. I don't, I don't think those labels on one level mean a whole lot, but it's part of it is the struggle to figure out um, how to get them interested in the kind of learning that I, as a teacher, want them to begin to develop, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what they want to do is something fun a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And learning can be fun. I mean, it, you know, but a lot of times it, it's a discipline and it's hard work and they haven't been trained in any discipline. So just, you know, every generation, it's a, a new struggle to figure out. And this current COVID generation who had nothing in their last year or two years of high school. I mean, nothing. Um, And now they're coming into the class, uh, more regulated classrooms, and they don't really know how to handle the fact that you're not a screen um, and that they're around other people and that there's really work in the class. It's not um, what they did in their last year of high school in which they got the grade they wanted, this is what students told me. And then the teachers would tell them, well, you're done. So you have the grade you want, that's fine. But then they have to face, you know, for us a 15 week class and it's very difficult for them. No foundation, nothing to connect with necessarily, right? Without doing the work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And no, and 
and anything they knew about how to approach it, they've lost. Yeah. Yeah. What is a favorite nickname by which you were called by a loved one? You know, I'd never had nicknames because my mother did not like them. And so when people tried to give me uh-huh. nicknames, uh-huh. she would just say, nope, you're going to call her by her name. I have, so I've never had a nickname. My mother was the same way. She actually picked names for us that couldn't be like shortened or knocked off. Yeah. Because our family is, I I was old and I'm going to say like in my teens before I realized the nicknames were not my family's, my cousins and uncles and aunts names. Real names. They had other other names, but they never got anyway. They never got used. Yeah. Um, My my mom didn't like it either. And I don't know if it's because sometimes nicknames for black folk were so odd and she just didn't want some kind of odd name attached Mm -hmm. to me. So it just never happened. I know that's what my mom did. Mm-hmm. Uh, what profession other than teaching would you like to attempt? Oh, wow. It's hard. You know, at this point, it's hard to imagine. Um, I, I used to write more poetry and uh, some attempts at, at fiction writing. I think I'd like to write more poetry again. That would be a, an interesting kind of job for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I, I never really imagined much else, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, um, a way of being when you're, when you choose a profession and if your way of being fits it, then but I think I'd be teaching whatever I was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you enjoy writing in longhand? And if so, what is your preference of ink pen or writing utensil? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Because actually one of my workshops taught me this, that when you can't make things work on the computer screen, shift to a journal, um, which was having the journals was really great because I usually write on stuff. And then, I, you know, four months later, I find a piece of paper, <laughs> scribble the thing mm-hmm. off, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my God, that was a good thought. That really mm-hmm. should have been an article. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I I think there's a pleasure in the, the kinesthetic action of moving your hand on the page. Mm-hmm. And it helps me. I make students write too, and they, they're, they don't really like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's something about slowing down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, well, I don't really have a favorite thing. I write with anything. Whatever you can grab, whatever's whatever nearby. Grab. Yeah. Yeah. What is your superpower? Oh, I can listen and hear what people's desires are and I can help, I can put it into a form to achieve it. Yeah, I can, I can witness that. I mean, I can testify to that superpower of yours. Yeah, I think yeah. I've got, I don't know why, maybe it's being an only child, being around so many grownups, but I think, I just, I think I can hear underneath people's fear, um, underneath confusion and and pick out what's really there Mm -hmm. and help them think about how sometimes it doesn't work because they can't acknowledge it. But um, but sometimes- But then then help them write the blueprint or build it or make sense out of it so it can become something should they choose to make it something. Yeah, the question of how do you get from desire to 
you know, form. And I think a lot of people just don't, they have all the desire, but they don't know how to get to the forms. It's lovely. What is your favorite cuss word? <laughs> I say shit a lot. <laughs> <laughs> when I met my husband, his is the F word. <laughs> and he could use it as every part of speech. <laughs> he was in the military. Noun, I, verb, adjective. Yeah, then, you know, he can still do it. He just doesn't do it as much. You know? And I thought, there's, I think that's a talent. <laughs> but I, I don't have it. So I have to just let him do it. But, but yeah, I, I do say shit a lot. Like something happens. I try not to, but hey. <laughs> yeah, we all got it. How have you survived certain violences in teaching? Ooh, I tell you, sometimes I don't think I have, to tell you the truth. Um, that's funny. I was just talking about this with my uh, African-American studies graduate certificate class. So we're doing the teaching class. What does it mean to teach, you know, to be Black and teach? Um, and they're already getting it. Uh, professors who just they're the you know they're still the only one in the class and so the professor a young woman just told a story about a professor who was he was what happened was he was furious at the whole class but he targeted her mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess all of us as people of color go through that and women too mm -hmm. uh, I think I've learned to handle it but mm. but I think every incidence of it is costly in a certain way. Um, the worst was around being re-tenured re here, which I didn't think I had to do. They told me when I came that I could, that it would be like a pro forma thing. And then because of some political stuff, I guess, it ended up that I had to go through a whole tenure case. Um, and it, there was, there were cruelties involved of, you know, taunting. Um, and I, it's funny, a, a colleague who was in our pre-tenure workshop remembered me saying this, and I didn't really remember saying it, but I said it broke me in a certain way. Mm. My health, I, I hurt my, I hurt my foot. I ended up with tendonitis, which I still deal with. Um, it really broke my spirit in a certain way. Um, and I don't, I, I'm very cautious around those people. Um, I don't trust institutions to do the right thing. Um, I think, so that level, I think it really was a, a moment at which uh, maybe I wasn't exercising enough flexibility. You know, we had to get, a, we had to talk to a lawyer. I mean, there was all this stuff. Um, and it, and it really did sort of break me in a way that I, I, my, my therapist has been with me since that whole thing. And uh, we still talk about it sometimes because um, she knows the, the folks involved, not directly, but through me. Um, in the classroom, I think I recover from it faster because it, uh, 
I'm always Dr. Medine. You know, I can't be Carolyn to, to students. I think in the old South, for a, a woman of color to let somebody use her first name is insane. It just sets up a, a situation of disrespect to happen. So I, I don't think the classroom has been a space, but it's been more negotiating institutional issues for me. I also think it's very courageous of you to say, I have not survived some of the violences, right? That the, toll, the toll that it has taken has been significant. That takes yeah. a lot of courage to say that. But, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh helped me with that. Um, and my uh, friend, uh, Claude Anshin Thomas, who's a Zen Buddhist monk. Thich Nhat Hanh, in his uh, journals, his early journals, was writing about this very issue, the violence that he had been through. And he said, it's, it marks my body and my spirit. And he said, I just have to wreck, I'm, I'm messing up what he said, but he says, you know, I sort of have to recognize this mark is there. Um, and Claude Thomas was a Vietnam veteran. Um, he went to Vietnam at 17 because his, his father told him he wasn't smart enough to go to college. So he enlisted and he became a helicopter door gunner. He killed a lot of people and stuff, you know, um, and he said when he got home, of course, he was using drugs. He was homeless, the whole deal. But as he began to get his life back together, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh helped him. He, he said one night, he, could, he just never could sleep at night because that's when the enemy came, right? So he said one night he was up looking out the window and thinking, oh, my God, I can't sleep. Why can't I sleep? And he said all of a sudden it just hit him. I'm not going to sleep at night. And I think, you know, there are some warrior marks, I guess, that um, you just know that's how it's going to be. I think you figure out how you're going to deal with it when the situations arise and they will arise again. You try to practice responses in a certain sort of way, Mm -hmm. Um, but you just know it's there. And it's it, it marks you psychically, physically, every other way, emotionally. Next question. What healings have you witnessed or received in teaching or the teaching life? Oh, God, a great class is like a spirit bath. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I mean, sometimes uh, I think I've had great classes my religion and literature classes are usually great i did a course here on tony morrison's trilogy and the students just loved it i mean they just were there the whole time so i think those kinds of things plus uh some of the work i've done with a lot of the work with wabash i think those young pre-tenure folk who need you know, they need, you don't even really have to say more, um, need to think about what it means to be a teacher, need to think about how not to die in this profession. Um, I just think that doing that has been just an amazing gift to me. And and con- consultations when you go into places and help all of a sudden their eyes open and they go, oh, that's it. <laughs> We've been fighting this <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, you know, this is a weird one, but preparing to teach a class on things I love is a real, mm-hmm. yeah. It brings healing, right? Yeah, Bring, yeah. Brings, brings a kind of a, a realignment, right? Sometimes healing is just getting everything aligned together. So there's a sense of wholeness. Yeah. Just sitting, re- rereading those Toni Morrison novels for that class was just like, it's like she was right here. And seeing new things and yeah, that kind of stuff. Just, I love it. What have you enjoyed most about the teaching life? You know, I love students. Mm-hmm. I really do. I like them when they're grumpy. I like them when I, I like them when they don't agree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I like them when they catch fire and all of a sudden you see something go across their faces. They go, Oh, mm-hmm. I, I really, I like students a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I like, I like working with graduate students, um, just helping them think through what's a survivable career. Um, I, th- I think that's a great joy. Mm-hmm. You get it in research, but it's not the same way. Yeah. Last question. Okay. At the conclusion of your teaching career, what miracles will you have performed? Oh dear. <laughs> Sometimes I think none. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> I made it through the day. That's as close as I'm getting. <laughs> yeah. I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> right. No homicide, no suicide. Good day. Exactly. I can walk. <laughs> Hand me my cane. At least I can recognize my cane. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think it's that student that they don't believe they can do it. And then they start to figure it out or they're afraid of their own insight. And then they go, oh, well, other, you think this is a good thing. And so they start to, they start to figure it out, how to carry it out for themselves. Um, So I guess mentoring on one level. And then um, when I used to be able to teach my religion and literature course a lot, like other professors would come to me and say, I had one of your students in my class. And I'd say, how did you know? Because, you know, classes are pretty big. And they'd say, I asked a question. And usually the question was something like, how does the human being grow? And and my students would always say, through rite of passage. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know that? <laughs> like, it's obvious. <laughs> It is Medinian thought. Of course, it's obvious. Yes, of course you know that. And, and they just kind of like, you know, you got a little bit too much influence. On oh, that's the, that was the point of telling that's you. That's the point, yeah. I just, but it tickled me. They would take those things out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and keep using them. That's mm-hmm. that's it. Use it. But that's the payoff, mind. right? We live for those moments. At least I do. I live for those moments. Yeah, I do too. When you realize, you know, like I, I remember early here, I taught theories of religion or something, and I was on campus one day. And I heard this scream, Dr. Medine, Dr. Medine. And I saw the student running up, and she said, In my other class, we talked about Durkheim, and I knew all about it. <laughs> I had been in your class. <laughs> Fantastic. She was so proud that she knew all about it. 
and I could tell him, and I could, I could articulate. And I could tell him, yeah. yeah. And she's yeah. an African American student, and I thought, I wondered what happened in that moment when the professor said Durkheim, and she went, actually, but just the experience of knowing you know something, right? Yeah, is, that's good. It's just so worthwhile, right? It's just to see a student come to know something and then be able to communicate it is, is probably the, the witness of a miracle, right? To be able yeah. to witness a miracle. I use that toolbox image. I say, you know, some of your, some of this stuff will be at the very bottom. It'll be all rusty. One day you'll need it and you'll have to take it out and clean it before you can use it. So other things will be right at the top. You use them all the time. But I think those moments when students don't even realize that the tools work in different places, are, it's really fascinating. And then they figure it out and they're like, oh my God, this, I can think about this in sociology. I can think about this in psychology. I can, it's great. <laughs> Dr. Medine, thank you for your candidness. Thank you for the work that you do, right? And for your commitment. You're, you are such a committed teacher and such a, a teacher that is so involved um, in the process of learning. So thank you. Oh, thank you. To our listeners, the Wabash Center website is the place. Look on our website for details concerning our three foci. First, our cohort experiences like our workshops, our colloquies, our roundtables, and meetings on teaching and the teaching life. Second, our educational resources like our blogs, our syllabi collection, journal on teaching, and all the many podcasts that we have in our archive. Our third focus is our regranting program, which provides funding for projects to strengthen teaching and the teaching life. So see our website for all the information. A special thanks to sound engineer, Dr. Paula Myrie and podcast producer, Rachel Mills. The music which frames the silhouette podcast is the original composition of Paul Myrie. Wabash Center for more than 28 years is exclusively funded by Lilly Endowment Incorporated. And we are out. How was that, Paul?